today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Remembrance Day reminds us we're regressing? Are we going backwards? Are we sliding backwards? Did Remembrance Day feel different for you this year? Odd in the sense that I don't think I've ever talked about a Remembrance Day the day after Remembrance Day. What? Why would you even be doing that? Well, because it seemed different this year. And it certainly, uh, I think, with the speech from the French president, made us look at it a little differently. Because usually we remember and, 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 and promise to never repeat those mistakes. But yet this time it seems we're talking, we were talking about how we keep those old demons behind us. Odd. I don't think I ever remember that. Let's bring in Monica Heller, Professor of Social Justice Education, University of Toronto, and on the line with us now. Monica, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. A pleasure. Over and above the 100th anniversary of the armistice signing and such, was it different this year? Did it seem different? Well, you know, 100 anniversaries always make people go back and say, well, so what was going, what was really going on then? It's, uh, it's always a good moment to revisit one's history, no matter what it's an anniversary of. Yes, I think there um, there has been, you know, we're building up in some sense. There's been discussion of what nationalism actually means, what the relationship is between violence and nationalism. Uh, we've seen a lot more of that, um, you know, closer and closer to home. So I think, you know, the occasion was uh, tapped into a lot of feelings of unease about whether you know, whether we are still living with, in many respects, uh, some of the issues that, you know, burst into war at various times in the 19th and 20th centuries. Let's talk about nationalism. That seemed to be the buzzword. What is it? Why is it bad? Why is it good? <laughs> well, uh, you know, like anything else, uh, it's one of those things where sometimes it has good things and sometimes it has bad things and sometimes it works out better for some people and worse for others. So things are never never that simple. But you know, to give you a kind of a uh, you know overly simplified canned definition, essentially it's a set of ideas that uh, we should be organizing ourselves politically around something that we call the nation state. There are some questions as to the extent to which nations are understood in kind of what's usually thought of as a, as romantic nationalism which largely associated with uh, various philosophers of the early 19th century, with the notion that uh, the world is made up of organic bodies, just as we have species of animals, we have species of humans, and that these are nations, and they're somehow or other they're rooted in a particular soil. But that's very much an ideology which serves a certain set of interests, and you know, I would argue they serve the interests of making a particular kind of state which is useful for particular forms of capitalism. So it tends to, nationalism is used to justify particular kinds of uh, territorial bounded political formations and to make certain kinds of citizens to decide who counts as a good citizen, who doesn't count as a good citizen, who, who, is, who is able to become one, who you know, should never be allowed in. And which also then, of course, um, creates you know, the problem of anything that doesn't 
fit into a particular idea of mm. what a nation is. What do you do with somebody who doesn't fit? Uh, it, it almost sounds like it, it depends on how it is used, almost like religion. It depends on how it's interpreted. Well, it's partly depends on how it's interpreted, but I would say more than that, it carries within it the idea of the boundary. It carries within it the idea mm. of inclusion and exclusion, so that it asks you to think about who is a member of the nation, what does it mean to be a good member of the nation, who am I going to allow into the nation, which therefore then has its flip side. Mm. Who am I leaving out? Who am I excluding? What was the significance of the French president's speech this Remembrance Day? I think partly, I mean, there are many you know, different ways to interpret it. I think, you know, partly what he's trying to do is to remind us that we are still living in a world in which the nation state and the idea of the nation is a powerful one, and one in which, what, an idea which can turn us against each other. So that, I think he's trying to remind us that we're not in a post-national uh, global universe at this point. We're still organized by nations, and that there is a very dark side to what a nation can be. The light side, if you like, is that it's supposed to be a space where people can come together, share resources, share their lives, help each other, uh, help to build a society which is fair and more just. But because it has that inherent boundary in it, there's always that possibility of, uh, and in some sense, I would even argue the necessity of, of removing anything that doesn't fit. So that, that's, that's the problem. That's the tension. Mm. And he's calling our attention to that. Is that message resonating with Donald Trump? I don't think I can be held responsible for being able to tell you what Donald Trump no, we, I was having I was ha- I was having this discussion with a previous guest, and we were talking about these ceremonies, especially in this part of the world, hold tremendous significance. And although I've never been to one there, I can imagine how moving it must be, and especially to see all of those world leaders, uh, to see them all marching. Um, uh, obviously, Donald Trump missed that part. Um, you, you wonder how this cannot make an impact on them. I'm not clear to me that um, that those kinds of ceremonies will necessarily have an impact on people who are not able, able to or ready to or interested in receiving them. This is not the first time the point has been made. We've gone to war against each other. We've gone to war against our own citizens, uh, you know, um, despite them. So... The question, you know, maybe to ask is, what does, what is the use of the idea of nationalism or of American exceptionalism to somebody like Trump? And maybe, you know, more importantly, to the people who support him and the people that he's speaking to, what, what use does he want to make of that idea? Uh, do you think he comprehends that? Do you think the capacity is there for that? I mean, yeah, how can, how can you not grow in the role? <laughs> uh, you know, again, you know, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is above my pay grade. I, no, you know, I, hear you. I guess I would argue that that Trump has a particular agenda in mind with for you know a particular kind of a particular vision of the society that he wants to live in. 
the United States is, um, you know, in, in some respects, in a position that maybe France and Germany were in earlier in the 20th century. It's not just a matter of nation states; it's also a matter of empire. And in, and in fact, nation state and empire go hand in hand. The U.S. is in, and you know, arguably Russia right now are in the position of the imperial powers. It's not just a matter of nationalism. And so if you understand yourself as a as an imperial power, as one, in some sense for whom, who makes the, the place that makes the rules, not the place that the rules get made for, then it really doesn't matter what anybody else says. How does this resonate in the U.S.? And, and I had someone even send me a note that said, uh, did you see the picture on, uh, of Trump's face when Putin came into view? It looked, right. it, it, It's the look I would suspect on a five-year-old's face if they had just been presented with a pony. Uh, how does the U.S. react to him grumbling with the allies or traditional allies, yet situations like this this listener's talking about? Well, Especially with veterans. The thing about the states is, and you know, I'm going there tomorrow, I'll be able to tell you more when I get back, um, is that it is a divided society. So that I think, you know, there are people who, the people who didn't vote for Trump in the first place, who still don't vote for Trump, and who are receptive to, you know, to the to the notion that we need to actually do a revisionist, non-heroic, non-glorious um, account of World War One and World War Two and the Cold War, in fact, so that our you know, our usual dominant account of these you know glorious wars fought for freedom uh, and that are making the world a better and better and better place. I think a lot of people in the states, as elsewhere, understand that that's maybe not the way in which we need to understand that history now. But there are also people in the states who understand it very much in the way in which um, Trump, in particular, wants to represent it, and who are, I think, um, very concerned about losing what it is that they've been able to gain through being citizens of the United States. So I think, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of fear. Fear has been used for a long time uh, to govern. And so I think we do need to try to understand, not as sort of there's, you know, sane people and crazy people, but rather there are people who are reacting in different ways to the sea changes that are going on in the world around us and who are going to then uh, going to then respond in different ways, take up different kinds of... Um, of, of to have different kinds of takeaways from what they're told by political leaders, by the media, or by their next door neighbors, or by members of their family. And so I think you know it's it's better for us to really try to get sort of into the mindset under the skin of people who are reacting. They may all be American citizens, but they're reacting very, 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 very differently to current conditions. And you're thinking because, and, and we go back to back to the U.S. election, uh, and we had this discussion uh, after the the past U.S. election. Uh, the Democrats spent a lot of time pointing at Donald Trump, but did they ever really realize, despite all of that, why the majority of people voted for him and not their candidate? It's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Well, it's it's in, you know in many respects it's the same story over and over and over and over and over again. That is to say competing visions of what kind of society we want to live in, what kind of society we can live in, and who really benefits 
the null. So we were talking earlier about the inclusions and exclusions of nationalism. There are a lot of people in the states who feel excluded by their own country. So we're not even talking about hmm. uh, the so-called migrant caravan. We're not talking about documented or undocumented. We're not talking about. We're not talking about asylum seekers. We're not talking. About, we're talking about people who are, you know, born. Uh, in the United States and are citizens of the United States and who don't feel that they are full citizens of that country. Whereas there are others who feel that they have everything to lose and nothing to gain by understanding the United States differently. There is, uh, right after the election last year, I was in the States and I went to a talk by an um, uh, anthropologist and former journalist, Melissa Harris Perry, in which she said, you know, we really have to understand this as a kind of a cross section of class, race, and gender, that the people who seem to be the most solidly um, supporting Trump or Trump Republicans are middle-class white women. So we need to understand what that, you know, if that is true, then what is that about? Why would that, why would that be the case? What does, how do issues of race uh, and gender, how do they fit into who gets to uh, benefit from the the possibilities and the opportunities of American citizenship, and who, despite their titular holding of the citizenship, who gets ruled out, uh, killed off, disappeared, mm-hmm. ignored, disenfranchised. Uh, we've talked many times in the show about living in a land of extremes, left or right. Uh, that seems to sell. It seems to get more attention. Uh, populism, uh, uh, parties on on either stripe of either stripe are. Are, are capturing people's attention with this. How do leaders capture the boring center majority, where the majority of us are being them socially liberal, fiscally conservative, or fiscally conservative, socially liberal, whichever way you want to split it. When does somebody understand that that's where the control is, that's how you will win an election, that's how you govern? Well, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people have been saying for quite some time now that the old right, center, left politics doesn't apply anymore. Right. Um, and so, it, you know, to the extent to which you have party politics based on that arrangement, mm-hmm. uh, if people aren't thinking in those, uh, there you don't have that kind of party loyalty, my grandfather voted, or, or you know, right. I've always voted, whatever, but rather what's going on now, what are the conditions now, who is it who's speaking to a complex set of concerns where you do get sometimes, you know, interesting and um, historically unusual alliances around particular issues. So I think there's a fairly widespread understanding that it's not party politics as we've known it for, I don't know, maybe the last hundred years or so, but rather there are different kinds of alliances um, and uh, alliances that are, you know, are not um, simply single-issue ones, but people vote along a number of different sets of issues that, are, that matter to them. So where did the traditional center fall? Where did, which direction uh, did they go? I guess it depends on the issue then. You're, are you talking about the American election, the midterms? Are you talking about the recent election in Quebec? Are you talking, which, which, that's what we're about. <laughs> I, I'm just speaking in general terms, of course. Uh, again, you're talking about how it, it, we, we don't fall into the, the typical left and right anymore. Where did the where did the center go? Where did it did it split off into little fragments depending on what the interest is, what the special interest is? Well, you know, from what I've been, you know, I'm I'm not a specialist in U.S. politics. You should probably talk to somebody with with more expertise than than I on this. 
but but are we not seeing the very, same? But are we not seeing the same thing in Canada? Well, I think there there are way yes. I mean, there are ways in which there are you know very obvious racial divides in the United States, and so. Yeah. Um, it's not like there's a center that holds everybody. They're very different voting patterns. Right. Again, right. broke you know by by race and gender, also by uh, urban, suburban, rural. These are really impo- important differences. Uh, uh, if you look at Quebec, you know again Montreal voted quite differently from uh, a lot of the rest of the province. The eastern part of the province voted quite differently. So it you know it seems to me that we need to actually spend more time understanding how these differences are playing out on the ground, why it is that the life conditions for different kinds of people in different kinds of areas makes things seem so different to them. So what can the world take away from Macron's speech? What are they thinking today about what he said? Well, I would argue that a central thing to think about is what does it actually mean to invest in on, uh, the, sort of the politics of patriotism, patriotism, if you like, in a world which has always been globally intertwined, where people have always moved around. So how do we think about what, is the, what are the right kinds or what are the most effective kinds of uh, ways of organizing ourselves that will allow for a better distribution of wealth, we're getting a worse distribution of wealth, right? We may be, the economy may be growing, but we're getting increasing gaps between the extremely wealthy and the poor, and what, you know, the, used to be the middle class is getting, you know, is in an increasingly precarious position. Mm-hmm. So the nation state can't just glom over those differences. Those differences are huge. So, you know, one thing that I would take away is that to the extent to which we still have nation states, we have to think about what it means that it is no longer doing the job of resource distribution that it promised to do after sec- after the Second World War. Mm. So because the left and right is not what it was, we are redrawing world order, are we not, whether we intend to or not? Yes, I think that the commitments that we've made to certain forms of global capitalism make that necessary. So how do you feel in the immediate future? How does this, yeah? How does this make you feel the world that we're in, the divisiveness that we feel? So I feel like these moments of social change are usually moments both of great fear but also of great hope. They are moments when you actually can begin to reimagine different ways of doing things. So I think the two things go together, and I would argue that uh, rather than despair over the fear, we have to ask. What are the changes that are going on that allow us to reanalyze and to analyze better so that we can focus on where we hope to go, bearing in mind where it is that we definitely don't want to go? So what do we need to put hmm. in place so that we don't go there? And I guess that's the easiest way. And when, we're, when we're having difficulty deciding the future, just look back and make sure we don't go there or you know, back to the past, per se, that we, we don't want to repeat those mistakes. Well, that's, I mean, that's one thing to bear in mind, but I think the other challenge to all of us is to reimagine what our hope looks like, mm. to reimagine where it is we want to go. If we can't do that, then you know, we've, we've got a problem, and that's sort of really where you know, it's not something I heard from Macron, uh, it's not something I've heard much, um, you know, from anybody, and I'm just as much at fault as anybody else is here. But I think there are ways in which 
the work of reimagining is probably the most important place to focus on right mm. Monica Heller has been with us, Professor of Social Justice Education, University of Toronto. Monica, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the California wildfires, let's bring in Dan Haley-Burton, American Red Cross, and their involvement in the situation down there. Dan, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thank you for the opportunity. It's not often we hear of the number of casualties that we've been hearing from a wildfire. Does that surprise you, or is that just another example of how fast-moving this fire is? Well, I think it's probably both. Um, it's a it's a devastating feeling here in Northern California. Um, I think people are really still in shock, uh, continue to follow the media. We still have a fairly high number of missing persons. And, uh, and then certainly as days go on, we've, we've heard about these tragic stories. And, and from all the reports we've heard, and we've talked to so many people in our Red Cross shelters who are, you know, there to seek safety and a place to stay, warm meals, and of course, the hope in many cases of uh, meeting up with their family. And from news reports, it appears like this is happening uh, throughout the state, both ends of the state anyway. Yes, it, it, down in Southern California, they've certainly had more than their fair share of it. Uh, we continue to watch with a lot of interest uh, some hot spots that have developed outside of the original fire perimeter. And that's really been exacerbated by weather conditions, strong winds that come across the uh, peaks of the ridges at upwards of 50 miles an hour. And then when they hit that ridge, they head down the ridge. And that's what really can drive uh, very rapid development of fire. And, of course, the conditions here are unbelievable. I think the number I heard the other day that in this area they have not had rain for over 200 days. Yeah. So the with the trees, with all the undergrowth, there's just lots and lots of fuel out there. The people remain resilient, though. They're, they're, they're very upbeat in the shelter. Yesterday, a, a little boy who was staying in the shelter had his birthday party. They had mm. cupcakes and candles, and so... Despite all of this challenge around, people are trying to find a bit of normalcy in their lives. Wow, that's great to hear. So what's the Red Cross's biggest challenge with something like this when you have an event like this on your hands? Well, I think it's just making sure that we're giving that special individual help to every person that we can, and that makes it a big job. Um, Kind of a, a bit of good news on our sheltering is that in some of our shelters, we're seeing some of those numbers decline because people are meeting up with family. We had a just an amazing experience yesterday where a, an elderly couple uh, lost each other during the fire, were reunited at the shelter, and then just yesterday her sister came and they all uh, left um, with some incredible harrowing tales to tell, but... Uh, Fortunately, in really good health. Uh, obviously, with California and 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 the Santa uh, Santa Ana winds and such, this is 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 not new for them. How is this different, though? How is this different than other years? What's the? How does this make the people feel? Yeah, I, well, I can speak to the issue of how they feel, and I, and I think it's you know it would be fair to say weary. People in this area like it's their home. They love this area. It's got a very special, unique feel to it. It's a, a mixture down the valley of agricultural and then up on the ridge. Uh, the, um, 
you know, kind of that almost mountain living. I talked to a local radio personality here yesterday who's from the area, and, and he spoke specifically about Paradise. In Paradise, it is, you know, for the most part, more of a retirement area, but it's not the first generation of retirees. The, the people re- grew up, they retired, their children came there, they retired. We're in multiple generations of retirees who have lived in the past and, and paradise. And so it, it, their people are, this is really their home and, and they're, they're very devoted to the area and to one another. Obviously, when something like this of this magnitude happens, you're you're dealing with evacuations. You're dealing with putting people in in displaced people in places and until they can get control of their lives. That's the immediate challenges. What happens as this all settles down and there is normalcy, but then the aftermath of of what has happened? So the phases are roughly the following right now we're still in that response phase people are sheltering their the 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 uncertainty the confusion all the things that go with that you know the next phase will be on normalcy starting to get some things that people who are evacuated and maybe lost a lot of their personal belongings and and not we're not just talking about clothing we're talking about driver's licenses social security cards uh various government documents, Medicare. Uh, fortunately, there are a lot of computer systems that help support that. But in a lot of cases, you need physical documents. You'll start to see uh, Cal- state of California come in, and they will actually issue driver's licenses to people. They'll confirm their identity through a variety of mechanisms, and then they'll give them a driver's license right on the spot. So there are things like that that need to happen. And then we start looking at how will government agencies, Red Cross and others, uh, bring FEMA bring support to the area financially? And then you start looking at the, the long-term planning of how you bring people's lives back together. It's going to be a challenge. There's literally nothing left. Wow. Um, what, what can the rest of the country do? What can the rest of us do who just feel helpless and, and are sitting back watching? What can we do to help? Well, there are there are so many ways. You know, certainly the Red Cross is always appreciative of the generosity of people who support this effort, uh, not only here, but remember there are multiple disasters going on across the United States, literally almost all the time. We're responding to multiple disasters, so that it's an ongoing process of disaster response. And then there are other charities. There might be something that fits your heart that, it hits close to home, and I think that's where the where the internet can be so helpful because you can start to find out things that are going on in an area. And I always encourage people not only to give now, but keep a little powder dry because in the months ahead, when this goes away from the news and people aren't aren't thinking about it out of town so much anymore, that's when they're really going to need help. So. You know, if you give something today, put a little note on your calendar to come back in a couple of months or six months or two weeks, six months, and, and maybe make a, find another place and a way to donate. Uh, this fire, we've, we've just been talking to a meteorologist. It seems the winds are going to keep going for a while. There doesn't seem to be any real uh, change in the weather uh, in the next week or so. So do you just keep up this intensity until the need drops? I mean, do you see any end in sight of this scenario? 
I have not heard the long-term uh, weather reports on it. Uh, I know here in Oroville, which is about a half hour from Surprise, uh, they put buses on standby in case there needed to be an evacuation. If for some reason those weather conditions, you know, caused an incident closer to to the city, uh, that really wasn't at risk. But it just shows you how prepared California is for those kind of eventualities. But yeah, I think we just have to soldier on. Uh, you got to keep your mask on your face when you're outside. The weather conditions have been very unhealthy. And, um, you know, we try to encourage people to stay inside as best they can. And um, we just keep on doing it. You bring up a valid point, Dan. What's it like around the rest of the state? Where can you, I mean, how is, is this is obviously affecting people uh, miles and miles, 100 miles away. Yeah, you really see the effect of the smoke all the way down the valley. There are days when it would be better up this way, closer to the fire, and then it's tor- terrible down in the capitals of the state, Sacramento. And then uh, in a lot of it, there's a valley along here, and so the smoke gets trapped in that valley based on humidity and wind conditions. So, you know. Dan Halliburton has been with us, American Red Cross. Dan, good luck and uh, keep fighting. That's about all we can do. We're supporting. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, This is a bizarre scenario to uh, say the least. And I'm going to read you this uh, article from the Ottawa Citizen uh, just to give you some background and what has actually happened here. Uh, The headline is, after two trials, two appeal hearings, a Brockville judge to rule on sexomnia case. Here's what happened. The accused, Ryan Hartman, 38, has admitted that he sexually assaulted the woman while sleeping on the same air mattress at a 2011 Brockville house party. Hartman's defense lawyer contends that he was asleep during the sexual assault. He pulled down the victim's pants and sexually assaulted her and not criminally responsible for this involuntary action. Uh, Sexomnia is a disorder that causes people to engage in sexual behavior, everything from touching to intercourse while still asleep, and was added to the 2013 American Psychiatric Association Authoritative Classification of Mental Disorders. In an interview, the victim said she was anxious for the case to end after two trials and two hearings. In court, the woman testified that she went to the Brockville party with her boyfriend, and they fell asleep together on a double air mattress on the kitchen floor about 2.30. She woke up sometime later with pain, her belt undone, her pants down. She got out of bed, turned on the light in the bathroom and became distraught when she saw it was a stranger who had committed the assault. In testimony at his first trial, Hartman said he fell asleep in a chair, went in search of a bed. After waking up with a sore neck, he crawled onto the open side of a double air mattress with the sleeping couple. Hartman said he woke up alone on the air mattress with an erection, his pants unzipped, and a woman accusing him of rape. The woman whose identity identity is protected by court order said the incident changed her life. She wanted to be a parole officer before she was sexually assaulted. Now the woman said she could not bear the idea of working with offenders after being victimized. The case has an unusual history. At the first trial, Hartman denied touching the sleeping woman, but based on the woman's testimony and other uh, uh, corroborative evidence, Hartman was convicted of sexual assault in May of 2012. After losing an appeal, he was sentenced to 14 months in jail. Hartman then went on to the province's highest court, the Court of Appeal for Ontario, with a dramatically different legal position. 
Contrary to uh, his evidence at trial, he told the appeal court that he did sexually assault the woman, but insisted he was asleep when it happened. Uh, the appeal was based on evidence by a, a forensic psychiatrist who concluded that Hartman was probably asleep during the incident and his actions involuntary. That op- uh, opinion was supported by a family history of sleepwalking and by evidence from Hartman's girlfriend who said she, uh, she once awoke to find him apparently asleep, masturbating beside her in bed. Yeah, I'm asleep, honey. Uh, the Crown submitted affidavits from U.S. sleep expert who said that Hartman was likely awake but drunk during the assault. Uh, in July 2015, the appeal court uh, decided to send the case to trial, back to trial, to determine the sole issue of whether Hartman was not criminally responsible for his actions because of sexomnia. All right, uh, let's bring in Jordan Donich, criminal lawyer, Donich Law, and with us now, Jordan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. How common is this? It's a rare defense. Um, We don't see it very often. It's similar to the defense of automatism, where uh, I'm sure people, some of your listeners have heard cases of, you know, a husband waking up at night, has a knife, assaults somebody and says, you know, I was dreaming. I didn't know what happened. It was a nightmare. Uh, Therefore, you know, I'm not guilty of the crime. This is the same essentially type of defense. Uh, but in the context of a sex offense, and that's what we're seeing here. So what's the difference between between being passed out drunk and actually asleep? So there are two fundamentally different defenses. And just uh, for your listeners to remember, to commit a crime, right, if we go back to basics, there's two components. The first is you have to do the act, right? You have to uh, commit the, the physical act. But the second component, and that's what this is about, is the intention, the mental element, okay? Just because you commit an act doesn't mean you intended to do it. And you need a synthesis of both to have a crime. And basically what this defense is doing, it's attacking the mental intention. It's saying, yes, a sex assault happened here. I agree with that. I can't dispute that. But I didn't know what I was doing or I, was out of, I didn't have control over my actions because, because of a mental illness. Therefore, it's not a crime. With drunkenness, um, that would be a separate defense not being uh, advanced here by defense counsel. Uh, but but it, it, it's similar in the sense that I'm so intoxicated, I lost control over my actions. Likely a harder defense to establish here. Uh, but then at the end of the day, don't you have to decipher between a sleep disorder and alcohol? I'm, I mean... Is using the sleep disorder as a defense uh, eliminating the fact that there's heavy alcohol use here? That's that's one of the reasons they were where they were. So the Crown is likely going to spin this to say, look, this whole sleep disorder, this whole sleepwalking defense is, is not credible. Uh, it didn't actually happen that way. What had happened here is he got really intoxicated his judgment was impaired, and he decided to take a chance. That's what the Crown's going to say. And that's why this has been appealed, and it's gone back to trial uh, and heavily litigated, because these are difficult issues to resolve. And that's why it's gonna, the decision's going to come down to, uh, likely, the opinion of the experts. And we're going to have the battle of the experts here. And I think that's what the trial judge is going to have to determine. What about the fact he changed his story over the two trials? I mean, initially said, no, I didn't do it. And then he said, oh, yeah, I did do it, but here's the reason why. I mean, does that hold any weight? So, again, it's certainly an interesting evolution. Um, but 
my understanding is he had novel or new evidence, fresh evidence on the appeal. Uh, so perhaps uh, uh, he was, let's assume he actually didn't know what he was doing, right? Let's put ourselves in his shoes right now. He didn't know what he was doing. He literally wakes up and someone's accusing him of a crime. Um, if you're innocent, um, you run your trial and, and you expect to win because you are innocent. You never did anything wrong. What we're seeing here, though, is such a technical argument, likely, uh, that, that it required expert evidence on appeal. And that's why it was sent back. Uh, but can he say that he just doesn't remember uh, and, and use the sleeping uh, excuse for that when the same thing could happen from alcohol? I mean, just because he can't remember what he was doing well drunk, that doesn't mean he didn't do it, nor he didn't have the intent at the time to do it. Right. And that's where this is getting technical. Um, the, uh, the crowd would argue that uh, let's assume that there's two separate defenses here, drinking and this automatism or uh, defense of sleepwalking, essentially. Um, for the drinking the defense, the crowd would say, okay, maybe you didn't know what you were doing, but you assume the risk of your actions by getting that drunk, right? By deciding to get that intoxicated, uh, you assume the consequences for your actions. Uh, the defense is not arguing intoxication. They're not arguing anything to do with drinking. The Crown is going to argue that to discredit the sleepwalking defense. What the defense lawyers are saying here is, yeah, he may have been drunk, but what really happened, what really led to this action is a mental disorder. And because somebody has a mental disorder, you cannot hold them criminally responsible. Even when it's inf inflamed or enhanced by alcohol or, or poor judgment behavior? So, right. So, so now we're getting a step further, right? We're, we're now not saying, okay, there's a mental disorder, but the question is, does he then become responsible uh, by, by consuming a substance, right? Does that vitiate the defense? Um, don't know the answer to that. That would be an argument I, I'm sure the Crown would make. The Crown would say, okay, you know, if, if, if it is believed it is a mental disorder um, a, a, that caused this, he is somehow responsible by consuming alcohol or by getting so drunk that it led to perhaps this sleepwalking. I think that's a difficult argument to make, though. What about uh, if this happens? Why doesn't it happen all the time? Why now? Why in trouble now? What uh, uh, you know? Why why no other reports of this happening? So two explanations. One uh, is it may happen a lot. We don't know that, and it could be, for example, with a spouse or a partner who just knows he does this. Uh, obviously, uh, that wouldn't be reported to the police, just given the context of it. Um, the, you know, the other scenario is that, uh, you know, it, it's happened perhaps here for, for the first time in a situation where it's not with another party who knows he suffers from this condition. How can you tell if he actually does suffer from such a condition or he's just using this and making it all up as an excuse? Just, you know, I mean, and it has the same reaction to everybody else who's in his condition. And that's a great question. What we're what we're seeing here, though, is a heavy reliance on medical information. And, that, and that's the only way to answer that question. Family history, evidence of, uh, of prior, perhaps, incidents uh, observed by perhaps other partners, um, and, and, you know, the evidence of what the experts believe happened. But, but you're right, there's going to be a little bit of a leap of faith somewhere in this case uh, of, in terms of the trier of fact having to figure out what side of the medical evidence is factually true.
right? Whether it's in fact what he's saying or what perhaps the Crown is saying, that, that this isn't an incident uh, of essentially sleepwalking and having sex. How, and, and how do you know the guy's not making it up? And I mean, maybe he's making the same excuse to his wife or, or his partner when he does this in the middle of the night. Oh, sorry, I was loaded. I, was, I don't know what's come over me. I mean... Yeah. And, and the truth is, you don't know, right? And in um, you, nobody, we're not in his head. Nobody knows for sure. And that's that's what the justice system is trying to figure out here, right? The justice system is trying to balance kind of two things here. The first, uh, you know, take out. I think what makes this one a little bit more difficult for the public to to perhaps deal with is that it's a sex offense, right? It's not a situation of him sleepwalking and smashing a window, right? That 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 mm. offense is the same is the same defense essentially right it's a, it's it's an automatistic state i don't know what i'm doing and i and i i cause property damage the problem here is the sex, sex offense and we're in a, in a period of our lives where these offenses are highly scrutinized so so that's number one um num- number two it, uh, it's really going to come down to as i mentioned whether in fact the the experts in this particular case uh, get it right uh and if they get it right uh, um, then he should be essentially uh, found not criminally responsible. And then he would go to a review board to determine uh, how, in fact, he's handled. Um, what about the fact that he got up off the chair because his neck was sore and jumped into bed with somebody else? I mean, he didn't have to do that, did he? Lie on the floor. I mean, did he sleepwalk from the chair to the bed with the other couple in it? Right. Or to the mattress? This is what's going to be so heavily litigated to criticize this defense. It's going to say, well, look, okay, maybe you sleep off, but how did you do this? How did you do this? How did how did all this happen? Didn't he put himself in this position the second he got off the chair and got into bed with them? And that would be the argument of the crown saying, okay, you may have done this, but you've you've put yourself in perhaps a position where this could have reasonably happened. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, let's assume for a second it really is a mental disorder, right? Let's assume that, and it's true. Um, we don't want to incriminate people who, who legitimately didn't have control over their actions, right? I mean, we, we, I think we all agree with that. Yeah, yeah. The, like we, we, if that happened to any of us, or, um, we wouldn't want to go to prison or be found criminally responsible if we legitimately didn't have control. I think where everyone is having a hard time here with a lot of these defenses is that they don't believe that that is the reason it happened, right? They believe that it's essentially being used as an excuse or or a crafty defense to avoid a conviction. Many will be that are sitting listening to this saying, enough about him. What about her? What about the victim? Are we paying as much attention to her story as we are to his? So the the answer to that is um, her story, I, I, I think, is is adopted by the accused. The accused, he's not saying this didn't happen, right? What, what he's saying is, I, I didn't know what I was doing, or, or I, I didn't even know this happened because I have a mental disorder. Um, but it's tough. You're right. This is tough for everyone. It's tough for her, certainly, uh, being re-victimized and having to go through this process three times or, or whatever. Um, but assuming he's legitimately innocent and assuming he didn't have control over his actions, it's terrible for him, too, and it's terrible for anybody that would be falsely accused. Um, and that's really what the justice system here is trying to get right, hopefully, uh, this time around. Uh, I feel almost disgusting saying this. How do, how do we treat his condition? How do we make sure he's all right? How do we make right. sure he doesn't do it again? 
So let's assume he's successful in his defense and he's found criminally responsible. Um, that generally doesn't just mean you walk onto the street and, you know, you continue your life. Uh, you'll essentially go before a review board, uh, which will ultimately determine um, what means are necessary to treat you and uh, ensure public safety. And that will be crafted in the disposition. Um, and that's something that would only be determined assuming uh, he's found not criminally responsible, which requires a finding a fact that this was, in fact, a mental disorder. You bring up a valid point, Jordan. If that is the case and he does win, well, what do we do to protect everybody else from him? Right. So that would be the job of the review board. And I, I'm sure there would be conditions, I, I would imagine, to not put himself in this type of scenario again. Right. That's, that's probably what I'm sure some of the conditions would be. OK, you have a problem uh, with this. Fine. Um, as part of our oversight, as part of our treatment. So you, you've got a problem here, so you don't go to sleepovers. I mean, is I, that it? I, I mean, well, we, we have to think about it, right? What else can they do, right? I mean, what, what else, what other powers do they have other than treatment? If, 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 if it can be treated and, and the problem will not happen again, right? If it's, it's, if it's under control and, and there's no scenario where this happens again, I, I think he's fine. But if this is in a situation where it's not treatable, perhaps, or he's having trouble treating it, then you have to, I think, avoid this scenario altogether. Yes. Wow. Um, and most are sitting there thinking, well, this guy is loaded. He's passed out. He's decided to climb in bed with this girl. Uh, you know, he's up against her. Uh, perhaps he's becoming aroused. He's poor judgment because he's intoxicated. Isn't it an extremely fine line between proving that and no, 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 it's got nothing to do with that or perhaps that enhanced it. But, you know, because many guys could say, geez, if, if I climbed into a, a bed with a woman, you know, I, I, I may not react the same way, but I would be aroused too. So I mean, no at, what, at what point does everybody just say, Really? Yeah, so there's no question here about arousal, and they're two separate legal defenses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, no one's saying here that it didn't happen. No one's saying that, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't aroused. What, what, and the defense isn't intoxication likely for a reason, because he would probably lose on that defense. Um, that's right. the reason why yeah, it's not yeah, that defense. Yeah. The defense is the medical condition, because that's what he's saying happened. Could it have been aggravated by alcohol? Yes. Is that enough to say you don't get that defense? That's something the judge is going to have to figure out. What do you think is going to happen here? I mean, I guess it's all going to rest on the experts and how good they are that day. Would that be accurate? I think that I think that's the answer. It's going to come down to what the experts think. This case is so far along uh, in the evidence. It, it's not a it's not a matter of sorting out whether he did it or not. Right? That's your typical trial or crime. Did did in fact this happen? No, we're past that. It did happen. The question is. Did it knowingly happen on his part, right? And and and, how, and what's his defense to that? What he's saying was, I have a mental condition, I have a mental disorder that bizarrely makes me engage in this behavior when I sleep, and I didn't know it happened. And that's the stage, I think you're correct, where it comes down to what the doctors have to say. Either way, will this be a precedent-setting case? The issue for uh, this accused is the timing of this trial, right? We're in a, a kind of period now where sexual offenses and sexual misconduct is highly uh, scrutinized everywhere, at, at work, uh, 
at school, um, in criminal court, in civil court, everywhere. Um, so I, I, the lens is focused on this, most definitely. And I think that's what's different now uh, in terms of advancing this defense. There's certainly going to be more public pressure, I think, to get the decision right. But that doesn't mean uh, there should be any bias towards a finding of guilt. Jordan Donich has been with us, Donich Law. Uh, Jordan, as always, thanks for the time. Fascinating case. We'll have to see how this pans out. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.